We are ending our series in 1 Peter right now. And our the next series, we thought, well, let's just turn the page. Let's just go to 2 Peter. And so for about the next um, next eight weeks, we're going to be looking at, um, at 2 Peter. It's a shorter book. We'll be able to get through that in a, in a couple of weeks. But we're going to be ending 1 Peter today. And so our scripture reading will be verses... Um, Eight, excuse me, First Peter chapter five, um, verses six through eleven. So First Peter chapter five, verses six through eleven. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. And we say thanks be to God. God, indeed, we do give you thanks. We ask now for clarity. Help us to understand, um, not just mentally, not just intellectually, um, but through our heads and our hearts to understand the reality that uh, this passage, what Peter here is charging us um, to be mindful of. And so we pray for... uh, open ears, open eyes, and receiving hearts. We pray this in Christ's mighty name. Amen. So to recap where we were last week, we talked about the duties of shepherd and sheep that began chapter 5. with how Peter was bringing this letter to a close. So we looked at the duties of shepherds and the duties of sheep. In many ways, this is a continuation of the duties of the sheep, the duties of the believers in Christ. And it is this. Now, keep in mind, all throughout this entire letter, there has been um, the main presenting issue was persecution for being a Christian. Suffering, not just suffering, you know, financial hardships or natural disasters or those kinds of things, but suffering and helping and how to understand suffering through the persecution of an outside world that hates you. And so last week we looked at the importance of the church being gathered together, the church being shepherded by shepherds and what the sheep or the people now are charged to do. And so this is a continuation of that. And as you noticed, and as you may have noticed um, through this passage, he's dealing with spiritual warfare. Notice that verse eight, uh, excuse me. uh, Yeah, verse eight, 
this statement. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There's a connection between suffering persecution from the outside world and the work of the devil. And so this morning, we're going to look at spiritual warfare, the reality of, of Satan and his demons, and it's basically broken up into two parts. So there's kind of two halves to this sermon. There's uh, the Christian's chief enemy, his primary first and ultimate enemy, and then we're going to look at the uh, Christian's call to action. Okay, so let's look first at... Um, the Christian's chief enemy. And we get one of his names here in this passage. What we're going to be looking at is his names and his titles. We're going to look a little bit at what that means from his, his nature and his character and his authority. And then we're going to look at his schemes and his tactics. Okay, So we're going to be doing kind of a biblical study of this being, this real being known as uh, Satan or the devil. Peter calls him the devil here, verse 8, we saw that. But probably his, his main, uh, the devil's more of a, a descriptive title. If he had a name, it would be, would be Satan, Satan, which means adversary. It comes from the Hebrew, it means an adversary, which characterizes uh, what his role is. He's one who brings accusations or slander against God's people bringing slander against God's people. And 36 times it's used in the New Testament, and it's always a title, uh, except for two occasions when Jesus told Peter to get behind me, uh, Satan. It's used for this being, and it's used in many of the books in the New Testament. So Satan is one of his names. The devil is uh, another. It's almost used interchangeably with Satan. Greek word is diabolos. And it also has the original meaning of slander or accusation. And this was used widely throughout the, the New Testament as well. So Satan and the devil. He's also known as the evil one. This appears, um, well, it appears in the uh, Sermon on the Mount in Jesus's prayer, the Lord's prayer. Um, some translations say, and deliver us from evil uh, but it also could be read as delivers from the evil one or the evil individual. This would be referring to uh, to Satan. It's used frequently in John's letters, refers to him as the evil one. He's also referred to as the serpent. This occurs in Revelation chapter chapter 12 and chapter 20. And we'll see those passages um, a little bit later. Referred to as the serpent in Revelation, which is very interesting because there seems to be some sort of tie-in um, that this is the very same enemy that has been the enemy of God and his people from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, right? The serpent in the, the garden. The serpent uh, that tempted Adam and Eve was uh, similarly tempted Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. And it conveys this idea that that's a kind of the state that he is constantly in is one of tempting. And we're going to look at that here in a moment too. It's kind of an ongoing activity from the very beginning up to Jesus in his ministry, all the way to us today. Similarly, the dragon, 
Revelation chapter 12 and 13. He appears as a great red dragon in this great spiritual battle. There's the spiritual warfare imagery. He's also referred to as the prince of the power of the air. And I'll add this one to the ruler of the world of this world or ruler of this age. So this conveys a little bit of his authority, his limited and controlled authority over this uh, earthly realm until Christ returns. Here's a couple of other titles that here aren't here on the slide. The tempter. Says Matthew's or Matthew chapter four and Jesus's temptation it says the tempter is referring to him. The tempter went away for a more opportune time. The deceiver of the whole world. Revelation 12. Um, John uses this phrase, the one who is in the world, the accuser, the accuser of the brethren. Here it's used as the adversary. A couple of other names, Abaddon, Apollyon, Beelzebub, Belial, lots of different names and titles. And the importance is not to, to know every single one, but to recognize how pervasive this individual is in the New Testament writings. When you look at all of the composite of all of his names and references, you realize this is a real individual who's real active in the world today. So a couple of things about his nature and his character that we can glean from these names and titles. Right. He's in first time we uh, kind of get the picture of him is in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter three. He appears in the book of Job when he comes into the heavenly courtroom of God. And he's the one that is uh, accuses righteous Job before God. There you get a good picture of what what he's like uh, right there. He's a, a tempter. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. He's a murderer. He's the betrayer. He's a perpetual sinner. He's conceited. He's full of hate. He's known as the evil one, the adversary. He prowls around like the image here in this passage of a lion. He's bent on destruction and devouring. He's an opportunist. It's described in Ephesians chapter 4. He's a schemer. Ephesians chapter 6. So you get this picture of the character of this real being of Satan being absolutely against God and all that is good and all of God's people. Now, here's a couple of his schemes and his uh, tactics that we should be aware of. One, he deceives. He's a devious schemer. We saw this in Genesis chapter three when he came uh, to Adam and Eve and he started talking with Eve and he twists God's words denies the the wrath that God was going to give on those who would uh, go against what God instructs. Just reference this a moment ago. He is the father of lies. So if there's a lie or a deception or something that is untrue that spreads even through our society today, if you were to trace its lineage, it comes from Satan. Deception is one of his primary tactics to keep God's people from knowing the truth, to keep God's 
people from seeing the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He's so deceptive that even in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it speaks of uh, the devil or Satan as masquerading as an angel of light. You remember this passage? Satan is most effective. And I love this, this quote. This quote here is from John MacArthur to looking at his overall deception ministry. He appears to the church. And this is kind of based on this idea of him being an angel him appearing or masquerading as an angel of light. Here's the quote. He appears to the church, not with the pitchfork, horns, and pointed tail of mythology. Satan is most effective in the church when he comes not as an open enemy, but as a false friend. Not when he persecutes the church, but when he joins it. Not when he attacks the pulpit, but when he stands in it. Right? Sometimes I think what we think of the, this idea of spiritual warfare and engaging with this real being of Satan, we tend to think, we, we tend to think of strange or weird or supernatural things like that are in the movies, you know, possessions and those kind of things, which is true and in many parts of the world. But I think in this part of the world, he could be equally effective with far less sensational or phenomenological things. He could do it through masquerading and deception. So he doesn't appear with pitchforks, horns, and a pointed tail. He sometimes can appear with a, with a smile. So he deceives, he tempts people. From the very beginning, he sought to inspire people to sin. First John chapter 3 says, whoever makes a practice of sinning, Okay, notice that it's works sin. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, it says. Okay, he's not talking about those who would stumble into sin and then repent and are restored. He's talking about those who make a practice of sinning. That whole thing comes from the devil. That's his, that's his mode. He wants to tempt. He wants to inspire people to sin. So much so that he even went to Jesus and attempted to cause him to sin in the wilderness. He cast it in people's heart to sin. Peter, when he was confronting with Ananias and Sapphira, said that they were going to give the whole, the whole amount of the sale of their property and their, their fields. And they kept back some of it. And then they told everybody that the amount that they offered was actually the whole amount. And Peter confronts them, confronts Ananias, and he says these words, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to the light of the Holy Spirit? Recognizing immediately, this is, this is satanic work. So he deceives, he tempts, he destroys. Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. He inspires false teaching. He is the animating power behind all false religions and magic and sorcery in the world. So much so that in the book of Revelation, when it's refers, uh, when John, uh, through the, the words of Jesus through John, 
and he's addressing the various churches. He speaks to the one of the churches in Pergamum, and they refer to the temple of Zeus that uh, you can still see today in Pergamum, big temple of Zeus. He speaks of that as Satan's throne. Okay. Altars to Zeus or to other foreign gods are not spiritually neutral. The Jewish magician in Acts 13 is referred to as the son of the devil. The two beasts in Revelation 13 are uh, uh, an intermingling of religious ideology and secular power. The merging of those those two beasts in Revelation is the merger of political and secular ideology and then uh, uh, an idolatrous and religious activity. And that's all done through the power of the devil. He creates um, doubt and fear. And he incites hatred of Christians. This is why I think he ends this letter. This letter that has uh, in First Peter has had this theme of persecution from the outside world and the world is going to hate you. And then he ends with how you should t- talks about how you should live in the world, live in faith. Um, but then mindful, uh, there's a spiritual warfare that's taking place all around this. The persecution of Christians everywhere in the world is demonic in origin. I know that maybe sounds extreme. This is true. If there's persecution of genuine Christians anywhere in the world, it has a demonic origin behind it. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, and then I would keep a bookmark here in this passage. Because we're going to come back to this passage. But in Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is dealing with a similar issue. He talks, too, about spiritual warfare. He ends this letter to the Ephesians, verses 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then notice what he says here in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is all connected to devil and his schemes in verse verse 11. And so Paul wants to remind them, hey, as much difficulty as you're going to experience, you're going to experience religious persecution, even from, from Jews who reject Jesus as the Messiah, you're going to experience Uh, secular persecution in the world, just know that as you're engaging these things, you're not not just dealing with the flesh and blood individuals who are coming to do these things. That the flesh and blood persons uh, is basically just the front for the rulers, authorities of cosmic powers in the present darkness. So this is, this is a spiritual warfare. That's what Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 5. This is what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 6. That the devil, our chief enemy, incites hatred of Christians. 
So let me summarize a little bit. We have a power, a real, powerful, hostile, supernatural enemy of God, most commonly called the Satan, uh, Satan or the devil. He's a personal being who maliciously works to thwart the redemptive pur- purposes of God. He, he intentionally works to perpetrate evil in the world, throughout the world, and among the people of God. So friends, when you're seeing persecution of Christians, when you're seeing pastors being jailed for just holding a church service, this isn't just on the political sphere. There's a supernatural, cosmic, unseen forces that are working behind this. So we do have a real enemy, a chief enemy that is after us. So a couple of reflections before we move on to the second half. Here, one, the reality of spiritual uh, of a spiritual world and the reality of the warfare that's going on in the spiritual world. There's the reality of the spiritual world. The world's not just material. Okay, there's materialists in the world who think that we're just a bunch of uh, uh, molecules banging together. And that even our thinking process is just the banging of those molecules together. But when we, when we die, this is, this is all going to weigh. And has no, re, no concept of, of a spiritual reality. The scriptures constantly, regularly speak of a whole other spiritual uh, realm and a spiritual reality. And so I would say this is a reflection to think about all of these things. That we, uh, I think the temptation is often great in this present age and in this present world. To think in just materialistic terms. And to kind of be functional materialists. I think the call for us is to realize the reality of the spiritual world. And then the reality of a real true personal being um, who is our enemy. That's the Christian's chief enemy. The first half. Here's the second half. The Christian's call to action. Here's our biblical call to action. And I gave it in an acronym. Okay, here's the acronym. WAR. With two R's. Two R's. Because I couldn't just do three points. There's, and you'll see why here in a moment. I think we, we needed to include this last one. So we are called to get ready for... Now we've established this. We have a, we have a real enemy... That is our enemy in the Christian life who is operates in the spiritual, the spiritual realm that but that enters into this material world. We have a real being. Uh, we have a chief enemy. And so we are called to action. And I think we are called to get ready for war. Here they are. OK, the first one. Watch. Watch. First Peter. Chapter five, verse eight. Be sober minded. Be watchful. Okay, he continues right there after that with your da- your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion. But he says, first thing you have to do is be watchful. Be alert. In other words, know your enemy. Know that you have an enemy. Know that he's operating and doing, engaging in warfare against you even now. Even now. So we need to be watchful. We can't let the soldiers on the wall go to sleep, doze off, get distracted. 
We need to be watchful and aware that he is prowling around, that he's looking for an opportunity. So be watchful because he is sneaky, he's deceptive, he's crafty, he's subtle. Our first, our first task is to make sure that our guard is up. Second, arm. Arm yourself. Arm yourself with the armor and the weaponry of God. He says, firm in your faith here in this passage. And I think it's helpful now to go back to Ephesians chapter 6 to see how the Apostle Paul fleshes this out. This wrestling against flesh and blood, against these rulers, he tells them to take up the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then he gives the, the, the armor pictured here and what each one represents Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Right? For the father of lies, we have on the belt of truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness to defend against the evil one or the wicked one. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you extinguish, extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert. So there's the, the watch part. With all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that the words may be given to me in opening mouth, my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. That I may de declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So here's the, the, the warfare. We're to be strong in the Lord. We're to put on the armor. We are called to warfare. Put on the belt of truth breastplate of righteousness, shoes that are ready to share the gospel, the shield of faith, faith in the helmet of salvation, and the word of God. Notice the prayer and the word of God, um, how important they are to our warfare. So watch, arm, and lastly, resist. Resist. Resist through the truth of God's word and through prayer and reliance upon God. Notice how prayer is a main emphasis here in the end of this passage in Ephesians chapter 6. Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith. James uh, chapter 4 verse 7 says something very similar. Submit yourself Therefore, to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Notice that the default status of Christians in this warfare is not defensive. It's offensive. Do you notice that? 
the default status for Christians in this battle, spiritual warfare against the devil, is not defensive, it's offensive. The verb, the verb here is active, it's not passive. It's not retreat and shore up your defenses, but it's engage. And also, according to the passage that I read in James chapter 4, who is the one who is doing the fleeing? He doesn't say, submit yourselves to God. When you encounter the devil, flee. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He's the one doing the fleeing. So a couple of thoughts here. God has granted us as the church the, the authority to carry on spiritual warfare. And the devil can be resisted by Christians. That's where we're called to resist him. So watch. Be on guard. Be watchful. Alert. Arm yourselves with the full armor of God. Truth. Righteousness. The gospel. Peace. Uh, faith. Salvation. And the, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then resist the devil. And lastly, rejoice. This is why I had to include this last one on here. This last R. Rejoice. Because of Christ's ultimate victory. I think this is the last R. So crucial in this spiritual warfare. Because we need to remember that as we're engaging in the warfare, we're, we are encountering an essentially defeated enemy. Because of Christ's victory over Satan through his death and his resurrection. 1 John chapter 3 says of Jesus and his work that Jesus, the reason that he appeared was to, quote, destroy the devil's work. The writer of Hebrews says of Jesus's death and resurrection that his death and his resurrection destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Satan's defeat is so sure, Jesus spoke about this, that he's already... that. That God has already prepared a place for the devil and his angels. Remember this, the parable of the, the, the sheep and the goats? The sheep are on the right, the goats are on the left. And of um, the sheep, he says, come to the place that is prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then to those on his left, the goats, he says, go away to the place prepared for the devil and his angels. It's already prepared. That's how sure Satan's ultimate defeat really is. This is so important for us to know when we're engaging in warfare. That through Jesus Christ and his suffering of death on a cross. And his resurrection from the, from the dead. That he came to destroy the devil's work. To destroy him who has the power over death. That is the devil. And to assure uh, his victory over God's people. Amen. Amen. Indeed. I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 12 and 20.
Revelation chapter 12 is a picture of this woman and the dragon. The red dragon appears in verse 3. In verse 5 it says, And she, this woman, gave birth to a male child. And we, we saw this in the series in Revelation. That this, this woman is, um, is, is the true Israel. Old Testament Israel that brings forth this male child who is the Christ. Who is, as it describes here, the one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where, she, uh, where a place was prepared for her by, by God. And there arose a great uh, war in heaven. Here's that spiritual warfare. Now go to chapter 20 to see how this warfare ultimately ends. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse... Uh, notice in verse 2, actually, the description... Verse 1 and verse 2 of Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the keys to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. There's the four, four of those terms right there in one verse. So that sets the context here. Notice what happens in verse 7. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan was uh, will be released from his prison. He will come out... Uh, and deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and on him it, uh, on and him who was seated on it from his presence the earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them and i saw the dead great and small standing before the throne books were open then another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the end. The ultimate and final defeat of Satan. And notice in the next chapters is you have this, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, because all of evil will be finally and ultimately vanquished. And so there's great praise and rejoicing that's happening in heaven because Christ has been victorious over him. This is important for us to remember. We rejoice. We're to watch. We're to arm ourselves. We're to resist. But then we rejoice because of Christ's ultimate victory. Friends, can we engage? Can we engage in spiritual warfare? Can we in the next, uh, the next days or weeks maybe just be mindful? Just see if you could kind of open your eyes to, to what you see that's going on around you. Or what's happening in the world. And maybe stop to think beyond just the material 
the, the physical plane that we can see and see if we can, through what God has revealed to us, see if we could see the, the agents who are operating behind the scenes. Would that change how you view political things in the world today? Would that change how you see um, financial things that are happening in the world today? Would that change the way you'd see riots and upheavals and things happening today? I bet it would. And when you do, when you do see that and you do kind of notice that, then, uh, then can we do this? Can we engage in that warfare? Can we pray? Can we use those as opportunities to search into the scriptures and find out what, what's, what's really going on here? Can we have that kind of perspective that there's, there's a warfare that's taking place and how does that change how I operate? Can we watch? Can we arm? And can we resist but then ultimately, can we rejoice that Christ will ultimately win? I hope so. This is spiritual warfare. And this is what we're called to. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we um, are grateful for your word that teaches us. We are grateful that with your word comes knowledge of a whole reality that is unseen. But yet we, because you've told us of it, we know of it. God, we're grateful that you have given us redeemed believers in Christ eyes to see not only our sin and our need for a savior, but that you've given us eyes to uh, the spiritual battle that is taking place in the heavenly places. And so God making us aware of that, not only that there is a spiritual place, but a, a real personal evil being that sent that is set on our destruction. God, that you would cause us to be aware of his activity that you would help us to know our enemy. That you would equip us with the armor that we need. The armor that you provide for us through your word and through our fellowship together as a church. And that you would enable us and give us the boldness and the courage to resist this evil one's activity wherever we see it. So God, help us when we see an untruth, help us to declare the truth. When we see wickedness in the world, help us to declare it as wickedness and to share what the standard of righteousness is. When we see guilt and shame in the world that you would give uh, us the, uh, the courage to just speak the gospel. That we can be forgiven and have peace with you. God, when we see a world of destitution and hopelessness, that you would give us 
the courage to share that salvation has been made available as a gift through Christ. That God give us the courage to share your word. Which in Ephesians is the only weapon, offensive weapon that you've described. And so help us to to know your word, memorize your word, internalize your word, and to be able to share it with those around us. And so make us armed and ready for this task. We know we have a great enemy. Help us to face him with this call to action that you've given us. We pray this in Christ's mighty name and all God's people said, amen and amen. Friends, we'll stand for our our closing uh, benediction this morning. A reminder, the offering box is is at the uh, table. Um, The... uh, the Harrison's open house is today at 2. Um, if you're not sure where the address is, I think if you check your, the, the email, the address is there. Um, and now for our closing benediction. Brothers and sisters, may the grace of our victorious and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and the love from God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the power of the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you.
Push stop, no. Uh-oh. We're, but you're going with... Uh, uh, yeah.